0: Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world in the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Mark Leonard and over the holiday season, we're bringing you a special series looking at how the things that bring the world together, like trade, technology, the Internet and migration, can also tear us apart. My work has been built on a rising tide of internationalism, but in 2016, with Britain voting to leave the European Union and Donald Trump winning the White House, that tide went out and like many other people, I felt shipwrecked and spent the next five years trying to work out on what had happened and even wrote a book about how others like me could, could make sense of the world. And the conclusion I came to is that rather than eradicating connectivity's dark side with a new grand design, what we need are strategies for shaping and surviving on new reality. I call it the age of unpeace, therapy for internationalists. And in this series, we're taking a more therapeutic approach to international relations, looking at how we can survive all of these different forces. But today, we come to the end of that s- series with a special group Therapy session where we look at the three empires of connectivity that will increasingly shape the world. The US as a gatekeeping power, the European Union as a rulemaking power, and China as a relational power. And my thesis is that instead of moving to a bipolar world or the ungovernable chaos of a nonpolar one, what we're seeing instead is the emergence of a four-world order with these three empires of connectivity, which have fundamentally different ideas about how to organize the planet. And A lot of other countries, most of the world's population, who amount to a fourth world, that are forced to navigate between them. And the big question that we're trying to deal with today is how do these three powers think about our connected world? And what can we do to allow them to coexist in a peaceful and constructive way rather than destroying the planet? So I have an all star cast to help us make sense of this. We have people who can take us right into the heart of the thinking of these three empires of connectivity. First up is Andrew Bradford who is the Henry L Moses Professor of Law and International Organizations at Columbia Law School and even more importantly is the author of the book The Brussels Effect How the European Union Rules the World. Second up we have Tom Wright who is a fellow at the Brookings Institution in the Managing Global Order Project and also co-author of the book Aftershocks, Pandemic Politics and the End of the Old International Order. He's also been, I think, one of the most brilliant analysts of American foreign policy thinking through different eras during the Obama times, during Donald Trump's tenure in the White House. And uh, he's now helping the world make sense of of, of Biden's um, worldview, as well as somebody who's written a lot about connectivity and the way that it's been instrumentalized and and weaponized in in other books as well. And our third speaker is Zhang Feng, who is professor of international relations and executive dean of the Institute of Public Policy at the South China University of Technology in Guangzhou. So let's uh, let's now go into the the meat of this and take a, a closer look at each of these powers. Maybe start with the United States, as it's still the most powerful one. In my book, I I talk about Washington as a a gatekeeper power and and look at how the US has been very focused on the sort of hubs in global networks um, and how they've been using that both to to shut other countries in and out of the global financial system, but also, as Edward Snowden has pointed out, using it to put people under surveillance Tom, do you think that that's uh, an accurate way of how the U.S. thinks about connectivity at the moment? What kind of power is the United States?
1: Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me on. It's great to to be with everyone, and I really love the book and, and think you really hit at something crucially important um, that I've been sort of thinking about as well. Look, I think in in the in sort of U.S. strategic thinking, I'm not. I think that there's definitely an element, a very large kernel of truth to your argument. I think. Uh, the U.S. has sort of conceived of interdependence and connectivity as an overall uh, sort of good for the international order, as uh, something that is to be sort of encouraged, but also something that can be used to work for a strategic, you know, advantage. I do think it's tried to sort of conceive of that advantage in terms of uh, you know, norms and rules for the order as a whole, right? So if it's sort of implementing, you know, n- n- uh, non-proliferation sanctions or uh, putting pressure on, um, on, on on Russia or other countries that might invade their neighbors, you know, or using it um, in terms of countering terrorism. But the overall net effect, I think, has been uh, to sort of use that interdependence uh, for more strategic ends in that it's felt by other countries, Um, as exacerbating their insecurities, right? And that they've responded in their own ways, either to hedge against that or to come up with their own ways of weaponizing um, connectivity. And I think the new development uh, really here is an increasing awareness that it's not a one-way street, right? That the US is actually vulnerable to this as well as being able to use it. And I think that's what we're seeing uh, with the Biden administration, to some extent with the trump administration it 's a recognition you know that China, in particular, has a lot of leverage uh, through connectivity itself and it 's not uh, shy to use it and so the question is what type of world do we want? Do we want a one world, an open world uh, where everyone is sort of connected and and in the belief that that ultimately will net out positively. Or, as you argue, you know, in the book, is that sort of fraught with danger because, you know, rivals that are also interdependent are mutually vulnerable and tempted constantly to use that um, uh, strategically. And so we need some uh, some element of tailored sort of separation and management. And I think that's sort of the debate that's uh, that's going on. I think it's largely in the people are largely in the latter category in that they do think a more managed approach is necessary but they're not totally sure what
0: that means or what that will look like so the us is obviously one of the architects of the connected world and during the unipolar period um uh it was definitely seen as you say as a kind of one-way flow (laughs) Where people will come into the system and be transformed by coming into contact with it, and now there's been this kind of rethinking that's going on. What happens to some of the core thinking in the US about alliances and what they're for, and the different kinds of relationships that you have as the the world moves from a more uh, unipolar one to um, the sort of weird kind of highly <laughs> contested and divided, but at the same time connected world that we're living in at the moment?
1: Yeah, I think the, um, you know, I think the the answer to that, I think it's still, um, it's still very much open. But I think there's basically two choices, right? One is that the US takes its place as one of these powers of connectivity, as you describe in the book, and sort of fends for its own interests and does its own thing. The other is that we're seeing a more bifurcated world where democratic and liberal powers will, you know, coalesce within the same ecosystem and will come up with an open sort of order within that group of countries that will have a new set of rules, a new set of norms, and limits on the use of that connectivity. And so uh, it will be more like that late 40s sort of period where you had a then sort of a Western order rather than a global order, um, but that that Western order had sort of unique open elements and rule-based elements within it. And so I wonder if that is sort of a pathway that for all the differences between the U.S. and Europe, or maybe with some other, you know, democracies, and that democracies would ultimately be able to find enough common ground to create sort of an ecosystem that would have limits and sort of rules and norms on on the use of interdependence and on how they interact with each other. And then the second question will be how they then react, how they interact with the other systems that are out there, particularly the Chinese led system, and what are the terms of engagement? To me, that's the big question. We might be on sort of different sides of that, if that's possible or not, but I think that's
0: sort of the big question that we face absolutely and i hope we can come at that when we kind of think about what therapy looks like but can i just ask one more question before we move on to europe and and anu which is you've written very eloquently tom about how the uh, currency of power has changed in international relations and obviously you know when we think about these sorts of relationships trade has usually been at the heart of thinking about alliances but actually in a way, it's less intrusive than than data or other kinds of things where you're really worried about people getting into your... I mean, how does the changing nature of our economy but also of geopolitics change what we should have in these alliances and these relationships between democracies but also the areas where it's safe to still be bound up with non-like-minded powers versus those where it's more risky? I
1: think the the part of the answer to that is that we have to change sort of the agenda in international economic diplomacy, right? I mean, if you look back to the Obama administration with TTIP on the transatlantic side, it was focused on regulatory alignment and tariff reduction. But a lot of the major sort of macroeconomic issues, whether it was international tax or data or any of these other sort of questions were largely tech issues generally largely took second place to that traditional trade agenda. What we're seeing with Biden, I think, is a little bit of a reversal of that, right? So those sort of macroeconomic issues are front and center, sought with the OECD tax agreement, but also, you know, the Trade and Tech Council with the EU um, sort of focused on Privacy and data issues, as well as sort of relational issues with China. And so I think part of it is about trying to identify those geoeconomic issues that directly impact on people's lives, right? That they experience sort of on a day to day basis and seeing if there is enough common ground. And I do think we do see some convergence there. And it's actually the US moving closer to the European mindset. I mean, Europe. For a long time, on whether it's on corporate tax or on the role of the mega sort of tech companies or on sort of unfettered globalization, had a more sort of managed view of that. The U.S., even to some extent in both parties, has actually gravitated toward that position, although they would not describe it in that way. So I think there is
0: an opening for a broader sort of discussion on where we're headed. Okay, that's a perfect bridge to Anu. You've written brilliantly about the idea of the Brussels effect, one of the things which I sort of try and evoke when I talk about the EU as a, as a rule-making power. Maybe you can explain it to people who haven't had a chance to read your book yet. What is the Brussels effect, and to what extent is that a kind of central way that Europeans think about power in this connected world?
2: Um, Absolutely. So with the Brussels effect, I coined the term to capture the way in which the European Union can unilaterally regulate the global marketplace. So the EU is one of the largest and wealthiest consumer markets in the world. And there are very few global companies that can afford not to trade in the EU. So as the price for accessing the large European market, these companies need to abide by European regulations. But often these companies conclude that it is in their interest to extend these same rules to govern their global conduct and their global production because they want to avoid the cost of complying with multiple different regulatory regimes. So all the EU needs is to regulate the single market. It is then the market forces and the self-interest of these companies that transpose the European rules across the world.
0: And if we sort of think about the the future, because the European market obviously is shrinking in relative terms. I mean, it's still a very important market. It's one of the biggest markets in the world. But um, there is talk now of a Beijing effect. The US, in some ways, seems to be getting closer to European ideas in some areas, as Tom described, but also has actually been uh, you know a more important rule setter in some ways just by developing the technologies that we're using which gives you even more say (laughs) over what the standards are so and i think one of the the kind of worries i suppose that europeans might have is that if you look at the kind of the the sectors which are going to be most central to the future of our world whether it's ai quantum computing battery technology all these different areas they're not great number of european companies that are setting the standards in those areas how yes. easy is it to have a brussels effect if if we're just regulating rather than actually making technology
2: yes i think it is a a very good question mark but Not having the Googles and Facebooks of the world did not prevent the EU from forging ahead with the general data protection regulation and converting the rest of the world to follow the European privacy standards. So I would use the word, I would decouple the need to be the producer of technology from the ability to regulate technology. But I think the Europeans are increasingly conscious that it is not enough for them to be the regulatory power. They also want to be not just the referees, but get on the field and play the game. And that is behind this idea of strategic autonomy or digital sovereignty or technological sovereignty. So the Europeans are trying to move to the next stage and make sure that they are not just regulating, but also producing those technologies. I think it's right, and I completely agree with Tom, that there is a change in the rhetoric in the United States, that the U.S. increasingly looking into the technology as a domain that shouldn't be free for all and left to the markets, but the the U.S. is moving more towards the European way of viewing the need to regulate. The different question whether the U.S. can actually implement that rhetoric into concrete legislative action. And there I am not confident necessarily that we will have an extensive set of regulations emerging from Congress across the different domains anytime soon. China, on the other hand, we may not necessarily see the GDP growth of China translate immediately into regulatory power. But we do see some ways that China is leveraging its power across the world, for instance, through infrastructure building in technology. So whereas the EU is exporting rules on technology, the US is exporting this private power through the sheer presence of its technology companies, China is building a digital connectivity across the global marketplace. So I would not write off the influence that China is having and the influence that the US is having as well. And to what
0: extent does this power that you're talking about translate into areas which are really high salience? I mean, Technical questions can be quite important. But, you know, we saw with 5G, for example, and with some of the debates around the tech giants that people see this, you know, not just as a technical question, but as about the infrastructure of our democratic and public spaces and how we can survive as open societies on climate, for example. There are lots of discussions about carbon adjustment mechanisms, which could have quite profound implications for the entire economic model that different countries have. I mean, how political can the Brussels effect be, both in terms of how we think about it, but also in terms of of its effect outside of, of Europe?
2: So interestingly, Mark, I think the strength of the Brussels effect comes from its nature of being technocratic power. A power that has not been politicized because it has been proceeding more under the radar and it hasn't really generated the kind of backlash. The more we try to geopoliticize that power, the more we are venturing into the territory where Europe is weaker. So if we think about national security domain of technology, including AI, it is pretty much absent from the EU's attempt to regulate the AI in large part because that is not the competence of the European institutions. National security remains the domain of national level member state policymaking in the EU. So that's where the EU is obviously weaker. And that is a big challenge for the EU. And it was manifested very well in the 5G debate, where we had very different national strategies and responses emerging, partially because there are different views on how to deal with China. How big of a national security threat China's presence in those critical uh, connectivity networks in in Europe where? And and that is one weakness of the EU, that the EU has struggled to find one voice in the domains where we have the very high-stake, high salience geopolitical issues that are at stake.
0: So, Feng, how do you see things from a Chinese perspective?
2: One of the, the kind of key questions
0: which has come up is this idea of relational thinking um, there have been attempts to argue that there's a sort of specific chinese way of looking at the world and a number of academics have argued that whereas people in the west tend to either be liberal internationalists or realists and they think about relations in different ways the core contribution of chinese thinking is relational thinking Can you explain what
3: that means and tell us a bit about the the cultural and historical background
0: to to relational thinking?
3: Chinese relational thinking, I think, is uh, rooted in China's cultural and historical traditions. These traditions can go back at least 2,000 years. They are related to Confucianism, which is the most important tradition in Chinese history. But they are not unique to Confucianism. A simple but powerful illustration of Chinese relationalism is the Chinese concept of the person, uh, which is in Chinese, it's This concept is based on the individual's interaction with other human beings in terms of their place in a web of interpersonal relationships, rather than on the individual as a discrete entity with an independent personality. So the, obviously, the role of Confucianism is very important because it facilitated China's relational thinking. But Confucianism itself drew on the primitive relationalism of China's ancient past. But I think we must give the greatest credit to uh, to Confucius himself because, uh, as he once he has formulated his doctrine, uh, relationalism uh, really became, I think, the most important uh, intellectual tradition in Chinese history. So just to to be clear, the the kind of claim, I think, by Chinese
0: academics is that whereas Western thinkers tend to look at the individuals when Mm. they look at society or when they look at uh, international relations, they look at the power of states. What Mm. matters more to the Chinese when they look at the world is the ties that bind different people together and the quality of their relationships. Is that
3: right? Well, I, I think that that claim, that kind of contrast is drawn too strongly. I think mainly because I think there is also a relational relation in the West. But when it comes to, to Chinese relationalism, I think the most distinctive feature of Chinese relationalism is that it is an ontology that is, you know, it sees the problem of being as relational. In other words, it sees, sees, sees the problem being of mutual relations, of interconnected events. And of you know, interdependent coexistence, it emphasises those relational aspects of uh, of the social world. Just to to go
0: a bit deeper into that, one of the terms that every Westerner encounters on their first trip to China is this idea of guangxi, which mm. is the amounts of relationship. How does that fit into this relational worldview?
3: <laughs> There's interesting. It, 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 it's a very interesting, complicated story. You know how you interpret the, the Chinese concept, guanxi basically means your relationships with other people. It's your ties with other people uh, in a network, uh, in a social network. So th- this word, this concept of guanxi really derives from Chinese relationalism. So they are they are very intricately connected. So when you say that people, for example, when you go to China and people emphasize the importance of guanxi, what it really means is that the Chinese people pays a lot of attention. lays a lot of emphasis on how ties, how the building up of Personal relationships with other people is going to help you, uh, in various sorts of ways. But if you change the perspective, if we, we are talking about relationalism as an analytical approach, then we'll use that kind of perspective, the, 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 the way that we, well, I have just described, you know, people in Chinese society today emphasize guanxi, the importance of Guanxi. You can sort of say, yeah, that's the value of relationalism for you, for interpreting Chinese society today because they place so much emphasis on Guanxi. That was
0: fascinating from Fung. I think we've now kind of covered the three big empires of connectivity. And the question really is to what extent we can find a global system that will allow everybody to coexist in ways where the existence of other systems isn't seen as a sort of existential threat and a permanent source of systemic competition and rivalry. Tom, why don't you go first? It would be really interesting to hear what your kind of vision for the new order is. I mean, you hinted earlier on about how one of the dilemmas is whether we should—it's right to think about this as a kind of three-system order, or whether it's more of a sort of bifurcated world where you have open societies coming together a, a lot more closely, and um, you know, China maybe being engaged but in a in a less sort of dense and thick way than we have over the last few years. And, and it may be trying to develop an alternative world order. Is that, do you think, a, a scenario which could be kind of peaceful or constructive? Or do you think that that we're going to see some other sort of patterns emerge? Yeah, look, I
1: think the the Chinese-led system will pose... Um, major sort of challenges to all countries, including to the US. And it's going to be a huge period of adjustment. But the the question really is, does that encourage the US to be unilateralist and nationalistic itself? Or does it push the US into a more multilateral mindset? Like, Does the US look to institutions and organizations of like-minded countries, particularly democracies, because it sees that as a strategic asset and it commits to that sort of rulemaking and multilateralism sort of as it did in parts of the Cold War, or um, does it reject those? And we've seen some signs, you know, that even on the Republican side, you know, of anxiety about the influence of China, for instance, in the World Intellectual Property Organization. And so the U.S. has to recommit to that. That was in the Trump administration. So I think there is a pathway to try to use this competition in a healthy way to actually encourage sort of the U.S. and and other countries to recommit to a new type of uh, more selective, you know, order. And in terms of the ultimate relationship, though, with China, you know, as you sort of talk about in your book, I think a strategic look at connectivity and interdependence is really necessary. Ultimately, each side may be more secure in themselves if they're a little bit separated from each other, right? If China's less dependent on the West for you know, financial arrangements, the US is less dependent on China on certain tech areas, and then each actually will be ultimately you know, more secure. But how do we get to that without sort of losing all that is good as well about interdependence and preserving the sort of healthy degree of trade and cultural and educational exchange that's sort of positive? And so I think. That's the question that we're only beginning to grapple with. I mean, I think that's all, we're only beginning to sort of address that. But I, I do think, rather than sort of encouraging an unfettered open world or interdependent world, I do think we have to think strategically about the terms of that engagement. And ultimately, we may be even able to do so in a conversation with China
0: on what that would look like. So, Tom, you're obviously saying in the U.S. imperial capital and have been studying American foreign policy for a long time, but you are someone with european roots who comes over to europe a lot how do you think that you talked a bit about how the us is kind of changing to move towards europe do you think europe is moving towards the us or do you think that actually you know what's happening is is more of a of a desire for strategic autonomy as anu was talking about hinting at earlier and that in some ways europeans are hedging more against the US after the, the kind of trauma, particularly of the Trump years?
1: Look, I think the the Europe is coming to similar conclusions to the US on China, but not because the US wants them to come to those conclusions. They're coming to those conclusions on their own. And I, I think 2020 was a particularly interesting year for that because, you know, if China had played that right, they could have possibly driven a wedge between Europe and the US over the response to COVID. But the, the reaction To COVID from Beijing actually had the opposite effect. Um, So I think ultimately, because Europe is a, you know, full of democracies and the US is a, you know, a democracy, I think they have sort of similar outlooks. They're different, they're not identical. There are some significant divergences, particularly on security policy in the Indo Pacific for obvious reasons. But I think there's enough common ground there to allow for a conversation and sort of strategic partnership on these issues. Now, the question, the the last element of your question, I think is particularly important that, you know, we have a lot of political volatility here and Europe can't quite count in the US the way it once did. And so I think it's sort of natural, you know, that you would see this desire for strategic autonomy, European sovereignty as, as ECFR has called it, I think. And, you know, all of those things I think are very natural impulses. I actually think the US has a role in encouraging that, and being a part of that conversation about how to ensure that Europe is more resilient, not just to China, but also to political volatility here, right? How how do we actually end up in a situation where, you know, Europe can do uh, more of what it needs to do, you know, for itself? And I think the US has an important role to play in that because of its traditional role as a security provider. And we ultimately need to end up in a position where it's clear like what the US would do with Europe and for Europe in a world that's more focused on the Indo-Pacific and that's I think the challenge of the next few years is to figure out that transition moment so the relationship and the alliance is on a solid footing for 10 or 20 years what can we do in the next three that would help advance that
0: how do you see it
1: Anu
2: So I think you put it really well, uh, Tom. I am very much in agreement if I look at how the EU is viewing the world and adjusting its strategic response. So the EU is moving more towards the United States in its growing skepticism of China's role in the world. So there's a shared challenge that the US and the EU are facing in how to manage the digital authoritarianism that China is not only practicing at home, but very successfully exporting abroad. So that's one uh, example where the transatlantic closeness in values is rather evident. But there's still a lot of questions on how to implement that closer cooperation, exactly because you said that there's a declining, a very fragile trust uh, in the United States as a partner. So the recent track record under President Trump but also several incidents under President Biden, whether we talk about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the AUKUS deal, the EU is not fully counting on the American partnership. There's also many European countries for whom the economic relationship with China is more important and worth preserving. So the EU is not willing to be put in the place where it needs to choose between alliance with America or with China, but it continues to try to hedge and engage with China as well. But I think there's also, there is a draw to this idea that US and EU are liberal democracies, that is the common denominator that really sets us apart from China, But at the same time, and I will turn to your uh, book of self-care, Mark, here, is that there's a lot that both the U.S. and the EU needs to do at home. Both are struggling with uh, preserving their democratic values and institutions at the home at the very same time when they are trying to build international alliances and cooperation around this notion of uh, democracy. But I like to maybe strike an optimistic note to some extent on the EU's role in managing the world, as you are describing in your book, Mark, because what the EU does on a daily basis, it is managing connectivity at home. It knows that if there's too little connectivity, there is no integrated single market. There is no effective European project. But if it overdoes it, there is going to be a backlash, as there was with Brexit. So the EU is very experienced in trying to manage interdependence because that is the ethos of the European project itself. And the EU remains very committed to the world within which we retain the aspects of connectivity that really brings us together and allows us to address the the issues that are of common concern. But the EU is increasingly pragmatic and aware of thinking about the dangers of connectivity and the care it takes to manage those. So it sounds like a, a kind of four
0: part approach that's emerging. On the one hand, there's a sort of selective decoupling from China in areas which are particularly problematic. Secondly, a kind of question about whether one can find alternative relationships outside of the global order where you can have like minded cooperation. Thirdly, there's a sort of pushing back against scary behaviour in in different areas. But the fourth area should be about cooperation. Even during the Cold War, we did find ways of at least cooperating on, on establishing norms about how to deal with particularly scary technologies like nuclear technology and try and make the competition a bit less dangerous. But also sometimes, you know, a more constructive agenda. I mean, the discussions on climate started... Taking shape towards the very end of the Cold War between the Soviet Union and and the West, how much space do you two think um, is available in that kind of fourth area? I think it's crucially
1: important, but extremely difficult. I mean, everybody says we need a mix of competition and cooperation, right? That's everyone's starting point in terms of working with with China, but it's been harder in practice and you mentioned the Cold War. I mean, the arms control agreements in the daytime period came after a decade decade or more of crises, including real major security crises in Cuba and Berlin. And so the question is, do we need to go through our equivalent of all of that to get to the point where each side wants to work um, with each other and shared interests? Or can we sort of skip ahead you know and, and and just get to that point. And I, I think that you know it's really unclear. I mean, you would assume that China and the West could cooperate on COVID, but it hasn't really happened. And that's the most sort of striking example of a shared interest. Um, and as you know, Beijing's view has been that they don't really want to have neat compartmentalization of the kind that we talk about in Brussels and in Washington, they want the overall relationship to be more conducive to their interest to offer that cooperation. So I think it's something that will be tested. I think there's a strong desire for it here, but I would have pretty low expectations on what to expect.
2: So this is one of the big challenges that every government, but also every private actor faces. So you either can choose a path of cooperation and engaging uh, with different governments. But also, if we think about how it plays out in the marketplace, we have many of the technology companies that have decided that the relationship and the differences between, let's say, U.S. and China are so vast that they cannot operate in both markets. So we have companies like Facebook and Google that abandoned the Chinese market no matter how lucrative it would be. At the same time, we have some companies like Apple that continues to operate in the West and in the Chinese market. But it is a tremendous navigating balance, both in terms of business strategy, but also the values and how you communicate that and the compromises you need to make in order to obey the rules and commitments that they need to make towards the Chinese Communist Party in order to to remain Uh, retain their ability to operate in the market, while at the same time communicating to Europe and to the United States how they are committed to uh, personal privacy and individual freedoms and how, how they run their business accordingly. So I think there are difficult value choices that take place at many levels within companies, within governments, and that is one of those defining choices that we all face as a society moving forward.
0: So, fun. to what extent do you see a big difference between Chinese attitudes towards the EU and the US, or is it just a bunch of barbarians who need to be managed in different ways?
3: I very much like the solution you offered in the concluding chapter of your book, the five-step therapy, and uh, step three says that you need to be realistic about what you can control. And you criticize two contrasting approaches as equally infactual, uh, namely one is convergence, uh, the other is systemic rivalry. And I think you, you wrote rightly that the solution is to work out how to live with a powerful China while remaining true to our values. Uh, I, I fully agree uh, with that. And I, th- I think the main danger now is, is ideological competition. And right now, that competition is taking place between the U.S. and China. But we may worry uh, if this will morph uh, into a competition between the West, other other Western countries and uh, China. Uh, I I don't have a good solution to offer, you know, neat, elegant solution to offer. But but I think I can suggest a concept that that might be useful for us to think about this problem. And this concept is not unique to China. Although I'd say that uh, there's also a tradition in Chinese history and culture that speaks uh, to this concept. And this concept is pluralism. Pluralism has both empirical and normative dimensions. And empirical, actually, I think the world has already become quite plural. Professor Barabuzan, he has a concept, a very simple concept, deep pluralism. And he uses this concept uh, to describe the emerging global structure, namely a global society you know, where uh, power, wealth, and cultural and political authority are distributed diffusely. But there needs to be more pluralism. Uh, And I think this, this, this is really what, you know, scholars both in China and in the West should come together and discuss. There needs to be more pluralism. So pluralism on the one hand, but there are also common problems
0: which we face, like climate change, pandemics. To what extent do you think cooperation is possible in those areas? Or do you
3: think they will always be subject to zero-sum competition between great powers? I remember that um, when the Biden administration came to, uh, took office earlier this year, Chinese scholars they began to discuss what might be the areas of cooperation. Between China and the U.S., now that the abrasive Trump administration uh, was gone, and climate change and pandemics, they were the two areas they identifying as most promising to produce meaningful cooperation um, between uh, between the two countries. And indeed, we have seen some very important progress uh, in the field of climate change. Um, you know, despite all the A generally bad state relationship between the two countries. They nevertheless um, managed to produce a joint declaration on climate change during the uh, Glasgow Yeah Union Conference. So that was that has that has surprised many people. Uh But on the other hand, I think you we really face serious obstacles to cooperation, even in a vital and a not so easily politicized and weaponized area uh, as climate change. And here I think, I'm, you know, I'm really thinking about, I'm really referring to um, the rise of a new discourse, uh, mainly from the U.S. side, uh, about how meaningful contribution, uh, meaningful cooperation with China over climate change should be achieved by more competition rather than cooperation. The nuance or the, the twist uh, on the Chinese side when it comes to cooperation, climate change is that they emphasize that the two countries need first to achieve a good enough, an overall good environment, good overall political and dep- diplomatic relationship before they can uh, address the specific issue of climate change. Uh, that is a very explicit message to the, to the US side
0: that's unfortunately all we have time for today. I want to say a huge thank you to my guests, Anu Bradford, Tom Wright, and Zhang Feng for joining me for a fascinating conversation in this special edition of the podcast. We'll put links to all the brilliant books that our guests have written in recent times up at our website, ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let other people know about it by giving us a positive rating and review on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on. But for now, from Anu Bradford, Tom Wright, Zhang Fung and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researchers for this podcast mini-series are Svansha Green and Lucy Halpenthal and the editor of this week's episode is Marlene O'Reilly.